the church of our Lord is a divine institution, but it's also a human institution. It's a human institution because of the fact that it's made up of human beings. And human beings are imperfect, and therefore the church is imperfect from the human side. The Bible tells us in 1 John 1 and verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And then two verses later, the Bible says if we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Human beings are imperfect. All of us are imperfect. And therefore, it's safe for us to say that the church is imperfect from the human standpoint. Now, of course, not all of the mistakes that we make are sinful. If a song leader arises to lead a song and announces the wrong number and starts on a different song, he's made a mistake, but he hasn't sinned. If he doesn't pitch the song just exactly like he should or doesn't lead it in the very finest way that it could be led, he's made a mistake, but he hasn't sinned. If the man who's leading the prayer does not speak loudly enough so that everybody can hear, he hasn't necessarily sinned. He might not have realized he wasn't speaking loudly enough. Or if he doesn't word the prayer as it ought to be worded, he's made a mistake. That doesn't mean that he's sinned. We're imperfect in so many of the things that we do. Those of us who preach don't always preach just exactly as we ought. We don't always select the right subject for the right occasion. That's a mistake. But we have sin whenever we make a mistake like that. We don't always do it just exactly right when we're trying to save those who are lost. Sometimes we say the wrong thing when we're doing the very best that we know to do. We haven't sinned necessarily. We've made a mistake. Or sometimes when we're trying to restore those who are erring, we don't always say the right thing and we may say the wrong thing something that will actually do harm and drive them further away from the truth. We've made a mistake when we do that, but we haven't sinned. From the human standpoint, there is a great deal of room for improvement in the church. Just as much room for improvement as there, as there is room for improvement in those of us who are individuals who make up the church. The church is not perfect from the human standpoint. And from that standpoint, all of us certainly need to be doing everything that we can to improve the church. But from the divine side, the church is a perfect institution. There is absolutely no way that it can be improved. The church of our Lord was purposed and planned by God from all eternity. In Ephesians 3, 10 and 11, Paul wrote to the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places, might be known by the church the manifold wisdom of God according to the eternal purpose which he purposed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, folks, I'm talking about that church that we read about in the Bible. The one that you and I are members of was planned and purposed by the Lord from all eternity. That cannot be said of any man-made religious institution. The church of our Lord was not only purposed by God, but was prophesied of by the prophets in the Old Testament. For example, in Isaiah 2, Isaiah said, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. 
and many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. For he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. The mountain of the Lord's house is the church. First Timothy 3.15 says, The church of God, or the house of God, which is the church of the living God. God's house is the church. So the church was not only purposed by God, but was prophesied of by the prophets of the Old Testament. Now, there were not any of the institutions established by men that were spoken of by the prophets of the Old Testament, not a single one of them. The church of our Lord was also promised by Jesus while he lived here upon this earth. Jesus said in Matthew 16 and 18, Upon this rock I will build my church, which one of the denominations established by men was promised by Jesus Christ. The only uh, reference that I can think of that our Lord ever made to any of the religions established by men was when he said, Every plant which my heavenly Father hath not planted shall be rooted up. I would not want to be a member of a religious institution which is referred to in the Bible only for the purpose of pointing out that it does not have God's approval. The church of our Lord was purchased by the blood of Christ. In Acts 20 and 28, Paul said, Take heed therefore unto yourselves and unto all the flock over the which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which you purchased with his own blood. Now there is not a single drop of the blood of Christ that was shed to purchase any of the institutions that have been established by men. There is not a one of them that can claim that the blood was shed to bring them into existence. But my Lord died to bring his church into existence. And the establishment of the church on Pentecost Day was accompanied by a mighty demonstration of the power of the Holy Ghost. And you can read about that in Acts chapter 2. Now, none of these things can be said about the religious institutions that have been established by men. The pattern for every phase of the church is contained in the New Testament. It is given to us by God, just as God gave Moses the pattern for building the tabernacle, even so God has given us the pattern for the church, who serve under the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to build the tabernacle, for see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to thee in the mouth. Hebrews 8 and 5. Here, the writer to the Hebrews refers to the tabernacle as a symbolical representation or a type, if you please, of the church. And he says, in effect, that just as God admonished Moses when he was about to make the tabernacle, that it would have to be made according to the pattern that was showed to him in the mount, that is, a pattern showed to him by God, even so the church has to be according to the pattern which is revealed to us by our Lord. I know that there are a number who have outgrown the idea of what they call pattern theology. But I thank God that my brother in Christ who wrote the book of Hebrews was not among that number. 
He believed and wrote by the guidance of the Holy Spirit that there is indeed a pattern for the church. The New Testament contains a number of warnings and admonitions with reference to departures from that pattern which God has revealed. For example, 1 Timothy 4 and 1 says, Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Here is a warning that some will depart from the faith. In Acts 20, verses 29 and 30, the Apostle Paul, in speaking to the elders of the Ephesian church, said, For I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he said, Also of your own selves shall men arise to draw away disciples after them, speaking perverse things. In 2 Timothy 4 and 3, Paul said, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers, having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned unto fables. Now these are just a few of the many, many warnings and admonitions in the New Testament with reference to the fact that departures would take place. We ought not to be surprised that from time to time there are some who do depart from the pattern which is revealed in the New Testament. What should surprise us is the, is the fact that there are some who seem not to know what our attitude should be toward those who do depart from that pattern which is revealed in the New Testament. Now, of course, there are some who are clamoring for bold but responsible, that's a quote, bold but responsible change. And this lecture tonight deals with whether or not we need to restructure that church that we've talked about. These who are clamoring for what they call bold but responsible change say that the changes that we must make are changes that are grounded in solid biblical exegesis. Now, if that were the case, then that would mean that we need to change from the standpoint of the shortcomings of those of us who go to make up the church. Those are the only areas in which we can change. Do we need to make bold but responsible change? Well, if this change is to be in connection with solid biblical exegesis, then of course that means what we change will have to be some practice that originated with those of us who go to make up the church. We can change whatever originates with human beings. But if it originated with God, then we don't have the right to change it. We have sung some beautiful songs tonight, and you have sung them in such a splendid manner. But I don't know that the most beautiful song has yet been written. It may be that somewhere down the line there will be a song or songs written that will be even more beautiful than the ones that we've sung here tonight or any other that ever has been written. I know that's hard to conceive of, and yet, I'd just like to think that we'll do better on down the way than we've done. I, I have an idea that down through the years somewhere, we will be able to improve on a number of things. I, I don't believe that it would be sinful, for example. 
I don't say that this is an improvement, but I don't think it's sinful if you wanted to show the words of a song on a screen with an overhead projector instead of using a songbook. I don't think there's anything sinful about that. And it might be that in an assembly this size that on some occasion it might be needed for us to have two or three or even four song directors. I don't think there'd be anything sinful about that. I might begin to worry just a little bit and wonder when I see those things if somebody is trying to change for the sake of change. But I realize that there are some areas where some changes can indeed take place. But whenever we think about the changes that these self-styled change agents in the church are trying to bring about, I realize these are not the things that they're talking about. And incidentally, let me say here, when I say self-styled change agents in the church, I made reference in a sermon to change agents in the church, and there was some fella who got hold of a tape recording of that sermon and called me up one Saturday afternoon when I was very, very busy. Uh, forgotten what I was busy at, but he called me talked about a half an hour and rebuked me very, very sharply for calling some of my brethren change agents. And he never would believe that they are the ones who call themselves change agents. That's not a name that we've given to them. That's a name which they have given to themselves. But they're not, they're not trying to change the things from the human standpoint. They're meddling with those things that are contained in the Word of God. Now, they have what they call their core curriculum, or they have what they call their bullseye passages, and they say these passages are important while other things are peripheral. I don't know how they know that. I don't know how they know what's important, what is peripheral. But let's just imagine for the moment that there are some things that are peripheral. I... I started to say I'm not very smart, but Doug McClish would aid me in that. <laughs> so I'm going to say I looked up the word peripheral just to find out what that means. And I found out that the word peripheral means pertaining to, located on, or comprising the periphery. Well, <laughs> I decided I'd better look up periphery. And so I looked that up, and I found that the word periphery refers to, and I'm quoting the definition from the American Heritage Dictionary, the English language, the word periphery refers to, number one, the outermost part or region within a precise boundary. Definition number two, the region or area immediately beyond a precise boundary Definition number three, a zone constituting an imprecise boundary. In other words, whenever we talk about those things that are peripheral, the things that the change agents are wanting to change, then we're talking about those things that are either just inside the boundary or just outside the boundary or somewhere near the boundary if we knew where the boundary happened to be. <laughs> Now, those are the things that they want to change, those things that they say are peripheral. And, of course, this kind of nonsense, I started to say this kind of reasoning, has caused them to pronounce certain things such as instrumental music, such as the role of women in the church, such as the purpose of baptism, 
such as whether or not singing ought to be congregational or whether it can be done by special groups or by soloists. These things are peripheral, and these are the things that we want to change. One preacher wrote, as a matter of fact, Brother Calvin Warfula wrote, Jesus did not die for choruses or non-choruses any more than he died for congregational singing. Brother Rubel Shelley said, I don't draw the line at the instrument. I don't think the Lord died over that. I don't want to tell you something. I'm ready to admit that Jesus did not die for choruses or solos in our worship, and Jesus did not die for the instrument in our worship. He did not die for instrumental music. He did not die for women's having dominion over men, and he did not die for denominational baptism. That's not what he died for. But Jesus did die for congregational singing. Jesus did die for a baptism that is a burial in water to a penitent believer for the remission of sin. He died for that. Jesus did die for men's being in roles of leadership in the public assembly. Jesus did die for these things. And what I mean by that is that Jesus died in order to dedicate the New Testament, and these things are a part of the New Testament. In Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 15, the writer said, And for this cause he is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions which were under the First Testament, they which are called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. For where a testament is, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is a force after men are dead, otherwise it is of no strength at all while the testator lives. Whereupon neither the first testament was dedicated without blood. Now, notice, he said the first testament was not dedicated without blood. In order for that first testament, the law of Moses, the Old Testament, to become effective, it had to be that uh, those animals had to die and their blood had to be shed. Now the writer continues by saying, For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the testament which God, God hath enjoined unto you. The blood of those animals was the blood of the testament, and it took that blood to dedicate that testament. Now, why is the writer to the Hebrews telling all of these things that have to do with a law which he is arguing in the book of Hebrews has been done away. Why do they need to know all the things that he tells them about that old law when the very purpose for writing the book of Hebrews was to keep them from going back under that law? Oh, he's using that to illustrate and to show how that the New Testament had to be dedicated by the blood of Christ. And this is just exactly what Jesus had in mind when he said in Matthew 26 and 28, This is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Now, when somebody says that a certain thing is something that Jesus didn't die for, I don't know whether he's telling the truth or not until I find out whether it's a part of the New Testament. Now, if it's not a part of the New Testament, then I can agree Jesus didn't die for it. 
But it, it is a part of the New Testament, that pattern that's referred to in chapter 8. If it is a part of the New Testament, Jesus died for it, and it has his blood all over it. Now, Jesus died for what is a part of the New Testament. Our question for consideration is, shall we restructure the church? And in answering this question, there are some very pertinent facts that need to be considered. In the first place, we need to realize that those who are saying we must restructure the church do not even believe, generally speaking, that they are members of the church that we read about in the New Testament. In volume one, number one, Wineskins Magazine, there is a purpose statement, and the purpose statement contains a statement like this. Our background and commitment is to the Church of Christ that was born of the American Restoration Movement. Our goal is to move that group closer to the Church of Christ revealed in Scripture. Now, the word Church of Christ, the expression Church of Christ, is used twice in that statement. And when they say our background and commitment is to the Church of Christ that was born of the American Restoration Movement, the word church is spelled with a capital C, as if that is the name. But in the second statement, our goal is to move that group closer to the Church of Christ revealed in Scripture. The word church is spelled with a little c, as if it is not a title. That shows me that these men are saying we're members of something that is less than 200 years old. We're trying to move it closer to the Church of Christ that we read about in Scripture, but in fact what they're saying is that they're members of a denomination. Now, of course, this is not new. didn't originate with wineskins. Brother Tom Holland said last night it was on July 22nd, not in the 90s, not 1993, but 1973, when Lynn Anderson said the Church of Christ is a big, sick denomination. And that's the same Lynn Anderson who wrote the book Navigating the Winds of Change. Now, if these change agents, as they say, are members of something which began with the American Restoration Movement, then they're members of a human denomination, not that church that was purposed by God, prophesied of by the prophets of the Old Testament, promised by Jesus Christ, purchased with his blood, and established by the power of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. They're not a member of that, they say. They're members of something that's less than 200 years old. If that's the case, then of course, they need to get out of that and become members of the Lord's Church. And if they want to change that denomination that they're members of, that's all right with me. The New Testament never was written to govern human institutions, man-made denominations. Denominations are built by men. They are supported by men. They are owned by men. They are controlled by men. And the New Testament never was designed to be the constitution for human denominations. Let them change it if they want to in whatever the way they wish. But they need to leave the Lord's church alone. But the point that I want to make here is 
when people are listening to these change agents, they need to realize that the people they're listening to do not even claim to be members of the church that we read about in the New Testament. In the second place, it needs to be remembered that when we uh, answer this question, shall we restructure the church, that these self-style change agents do not even believe in the restoration principle. Brother Shelley said in a speech in Dallas, ridiculing this idea of restoring the church, he said, which church do you want to restore? Jerusalem with its lack of evangelistic zeal? You want to restore Corinth? with open fornication and drunkenness in the church services around communion time? What about Colossae with its heresy? What about Ephesus? What about Laodicea, that church that said, we got it? Ridicule the idea of restoring the church. He furthermore said that the church that we're trying to restore never existed, and the one that we have restored is not it either. But Brother Shelley is confusing the human side of the church with the divine side. I don't know of anybody who thinks that we ought to restore all of the human weaknesses of people that we read about in the New Testament. The church will have human weaknesses even if we try not to have them. We're going to have them. I'm glad the New Testament tells me about members of the church who had weaknesses in New Testament times. You know, It'd be hard for me to understand if I read in this book about the Lord's church and didn't read about any human weaknesses and all of the people who went to make up those churches that I read about in the New Testament were perfect folks. I would probably come to the conclusion that we can't restore it. I can't be a member of it. It's been a long time since I thought I was perfect. Glad the Bible tells us about the human weaknesses in the church. Now, what I want to know is, are we going to follow change agents and believe that we need to do what they say when they do not even believe in the restoration principle, do not believe that you can restore the church you read about in the Bible? But then there's a third thing that needs to be kept in mind as we answer this question, shall we restructure the church? And that's this. Those who are in the forefront of the campaigns to restructure the church generally have little respect for the New Testament as containing a pattern to be followed in matters of faith and practice. Brother Shelley and Brother Randall Harris, for example, in their book, The Second Incarnation, ridicule the idea of the New Testament being or containing a pattern for the church. They refer to the idea of, quote, being in bondage to an imagined prototype or pattern for the church. Well, this is not a pattern for the church. It's just your imagination that causes you to think that this is a pattern for the church, and you are in bondage to this imagined prototype for the church. The idea of what they call pattern theology is held up to scorn and ridicule, and yet they're trying to restructure the church. And I can see why. I can see why they ridicule and scorn the New Testament as being a pattern. It has always been the case that false doctrine has been able to survive and thrive only 
to the extent that its advocates are able to get people to lose their respect for the teaching of the Word of God. Why do you think that Joseph Smith discovered some golden plates and had them translated and wrote the Book of Mormon? Well, I'll tell you why. He would have a hard time getting the Mormon church off the ground if the only thing he had to go by was the New Testament. Why do you think the Jehovah's Witnesses decided that they needed to write their own translation? I'll tell you why. Because it would be a hard time maintaining the Watchtower Society if all they had to go by was just the New Testament. Why is it that the Pentecostal people claim their special leadings of the Holy Spirit and the Spirit speaking to them? separate and apart from those things contained in the Word of God. I'll tell you why. It would be hard to maintain Pentecostalism as we know it today if people just go by the New Testament. And why is it that these new hermeneutics, the ones who want to change the church, want to ridicule the New Testament as being a pattern? I'll tell you why. Because it's going to be difficult for them to get people to make the changes that they want them to make so long as they have the New Testament and that alone as their guide. You mark it down. Whenever somebody comes along with some kind of an error, he's going to do everything that he can to destroy respect for the Word of God, at least to the extent that it deals with that particular error. But now there's a fourth thing that we need to keep in mind in answering the question, shall we restructure the church? And that's this. All of the arguments that are made by the change agents for change are based upon what? Do they say, well, we need to change because God's Word has changed? No, no, that's not it. Do we need to change because in the past we haven't been able to understand what the Word of God says and now then we do understand it? Here's what it... No, no, that's not it. Well, we need to change because this is the 90s. I get so sick and tired of hearing the expression, this is the 90s. And you know, whenever my brethren begin to say that, I realize that they are aping the liberals and the atheists on these talk shows that they see on television. Now, you, you turn on Oprah Winfrey or any of those talk shows and the subject comes up as to whether or not man and a man and a woman to whom he's not married ought to live together as husband and wife and if somebody says they think that's wrong and that the Bible condemns that sort of thing, why, well, this is the 90s, as if to say since we live in the 90s, everything has changed. And some of my brethren are saying that very same thing. We're not advocating change because of the fact that the New Testament demands change. We're advocating change because of the fact that this is what it's going to take to make the church more appealing to human beings. Let me give you an example. Lynn Anderson and Kerry Garrett in a Wineskins article quote, quote from a writer who said, reversing a period of numerical decline requires change. What's that? 
church is not growing like it ought to. As a matter of fact, it's declining numerically. Then what are we going to do? Change. Change why? Because God says we're not doing it right? No. But we want to change in order to reverse this period of numerical decline. In another article, Anderson wrote these words. Most churches change in order to connect with unchurched people. Sound like Willow Creek? Brother Holland said something about that last night. Our dismal growth sets prove that what we're doing isn't working. We're not leading many unchurched people to Christ, much less assimilating them into the body and nurturing them into spiritual maturity. Calvin Warpula wrote in Wineskins, I also believe we should let individuals and congregations use the musical format they like without judging. What about the musical format that God likes? change so that we can appeal to the people. In a speech made at Richland Hills Church in Dallas, Brother Shelley said, the tired, uninspiring event we call worship in traditional churches has to give way to the exhilarating experience of God that exhibits and nurtures life in the worshipers. Now look at it. Tired, uninspiring event we call worship. Tired and uninspiring to whom? To God or man? Our worship is for the purpose of pleasing God. Why, he said, that's going to have to give way to some exhilarating experience. I can just imagine. When God said to Abraham, Take now thy son, thine only son, even Isaac, whom thou lovest. Get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. And then Abraham went a three days journey with Isaac his son and with the servant. He said to the servants, Abide ye here with the ass. And I and the lad will go yonder and worship. What are you going to do, Abraham? We're going up there and worship. Worship God. Oh, can't you just imagine what an exhilarating experience it must have been. Folks, Worship is not to please man, it's to honor God. Amen. And all of these changes that are being advocated are being changed, are being advocated for the purpose of pleasing man. In the same speech that Brother Shelley made that statement, he says the church has got to change. If it doesn't change, my kids are not going to stay with it. If it does change, I hope and pray that my kids and my grandkids won't stay with it, Amen. but that they will obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when they do that, live in harmony with the things contained in this book, they will be members of that church that was purposed in all eternity, that was prophesied that was promised by Jesus, that was purchased by his blood, that was established by the power of the Holy Ghost, the same one that I'm a member of. Now, if these fellows are not members of that church, they ought to get out of whatever it is that they're members of and get into the one that we read about in the New Testament of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.